Welcome to another episode of our Six Questions podcast. Thanks so much for being a part of the Save Our States effort where we're defending the Electoral College every day. I'm really excited to have a great scholar, a professor at Hillsdale College, which I know many of, of our uh, listeners and viewers are familiar with, uh, Dr. Joseph Postel. He's a- also the author of a book called Bureaucracy in America, The Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government. Uh, bureaucracy in, in America, not not uh, not so subtle, uh, you know, uh, take off on Tocqueville there. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Postel, thank you so much for joining me. Good to talk with you today, Trent. Yeah, it's great to be here. So let's just start with the book. What Describe for, for folks who aren't familiar with this concept, what is the administrative state? Yeah, so uh, the administrative state, I think, is the way to describe how modern government actually works in America. We teach at, you know, say high school civics classes or even, you know, freshman level college classes. And, uh, you know, in the public mind, the idea is that Congress writes the laws, the executive carries them out, the courts exercise the power of review. And this is how the system was designed to work. And it still works that way. You know, we have this separation of powers and elected legislators who make all of the laws. Um, And we still teach that as if that's kind of the reality. But Modern government, anybody who's spent a little bit of time in D.C. knows that's not how it really works. Congress doesn't make laws anymore. Congress delegates the responsibility for legislating over to the alphabet soup of executive branch and independent agencies that we know as the SEC or the FTC or the EPA and so on and so forth. Um, And the executive kind of supervises how these laws are carried out. But a lot of this is really done even without any elected official kind of running or supervising the whole process. And the courts get involved quite a bit in how these rules and regulations are written. So take any of the major issues that have been, uh, you know, sort of disputed in American politics over the last year, like, a, a you know, a mask mandate on public transportation. That wasn't done by Congress. That was done by an administrative agency. Uh, a vaccine mandate in all businesses with 100 employees or more. That was done by OSHA, right? Not by, uh, not by Congress. And so you go down the list of things that happen controversially in American politics today, and at the bottom of it, you can always find some sort of acronym and some sort of administrative agency that's been given the authority to basically legislate. We call these rules and regulations, but if you violate them, it's the same thing as if you're violating a law. So the administrative state is basically how power has shifted in our political system from the elected officials in the constitutional branches, Article 1, 2, and 3, to this sort of headless fourth branch of government, which operates kind of in like a sort of dark gray area in the Constitution. Uh, the book, Bureaucracy in America, kind of uh, says that this is a challenge to constitutional government. It really is a fundamental challenge to the way our Constitution was supposed to run, and all citizens really need to understand this challenge. So that leads right into question number two, which is based on the defense that you, I think, typically get when you, you raise this issue, you know, this is in conflict with the Constitution. I, I think multiple of the founders said that the definition of tyranny was having the, you know, the legislative, executive and judicial power all within the same set of hands, which is exactly how these agencies oftentimes work. But the defense is, well, our modern life is so complex, there's no other way to do it. So respond to that, Dr. Postel. Yeah, so... You know, whenever I teach my students this, even at Hillsdale College, where they're inclined to think that the Constitution's a good thing 
and it's bad when we violate it. They always say, well, look, do we really think that Congress is suited to engage in, say, drug regulation, write the rules about air quality standards or, you know, um, say, airline safety standards? Uh, Do we really think Congress is capable of doing this? And my answer to that usually uh, is that Congress can receive the assistance of administrative agencies and and experts uh, when it legislates. It doesn't mean that Congress can't Congress doesn't have to legislate with no direction whatsoever or no influence or no expertise outside of the legislative branch. This is what committee hearings are supposed to be about. Obviously, they're not about that these days. They're about grandstanding and so on. But committee hearings are supposed to be where members of Congress engage in uh, questions and answers and investigations so that they can find out the information they need to legislate responsibly. And, and you know, they have staff, of course, that they're supposed to rely on for this kind of expertise. And so um, Congress doesn't have to do this all in the dark. It can rely on experts, but it's, it's better to have experts be accountable to these legislators who are ultimately accountable to the voters than have the agencies making these laws without really being accountable to much of anybody. Um, so I think there's a way to have sort of the best of both worlds, right? We can have expertise and we can have accountability. And that's the way a Republican government is supposed to work as opposed to, you know, uh, a different kind of political system, which doesn't matter, which doesn't care that much about responsibility or accountability. So part of what we're talking about here is, is the idea of the structures within the Constitution. You mentioned the Article 1, 2, 3 branch, you know, legislative, executive, judicial. We have, uh, you know, that's the separation of powers. We have federalism. We have some specific structures like the, like the independent judiciary and, and like the U.S. Senate that are particularly under attack. Obviously, Save Our States works to defend the Electoral College. How do we make the case to the American people that these structures matter? And I, I want to I, I want to add a, a particular twist to the question that you can respond to here, which is I feel like our constitutional discourse, not just recently, but but for you know for at least my lifetime, has tended always to focus on the Bill of Rights, the rights protections, you know, or, or the the Fourteenth Amendment, right? It's the, people think of the Constitution, they think of the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, yeah. and the structural stuff. Like, how do we make people care about that? If if that's what's supposed to create this accountability, if that's really the heart of Republican government, I mean, how do we get back to that? Yeah, I think the critics of these structures and institutions care a lot about them. So what the interesting thing here is, if you look at the people who criticize, say, the United States Senate or the Electoral College, they don't need a lot of time to figure out or a lot of persuading to figure out why the structure of government matters to them. Um, It's interesting. It's the defenders of the Constitution who have a hard time figuring out why the structure matters. So uh, if if you've been following the debate about this over the last couple of years, it has focused on the Electoral College, of course, but it's also focused on all of the other elements of the political system. So when you think about the Electoral College, it's not really an anomaly in our political system. It is, it is kind of in keeping with the whole thing. So for example, uh, you know, in the Senate, you can, one party can win a majority of the votes for all of the votes cast for the United States Senate and still not have a majority of the Senate, right? Because you can win, say, in California by much wider margins than you lose in Wyoming. And so, um, you know, because it's not a purely numerical majority, right, the Senate is not 
you know, you can win a majority of the votes without getting a majority of the seats. The same is true even of the House of Representatives. And so if you've been following this, this argument over the last couple of years, the critics of the Electoral College apply the exact same argument against the Electoral College as they apply to the United States Senate and as they apply to the House of Representatives. So I guess for defenders of the, of the structure of the Constitution and of the, I, you know, the sort of fundamental characteristics of it, they should understand what kind of a majority the founders of the Constitution wanted to produce. It was a deliberate majority and it was a diverse majority, a majority composed of all of the different interests spread a, a, you know, across this very wide, very extended republic. Um, and so what you know, the attempts to circumvent the structure of the Constitution amount to is an attempt to put this numerical majority in charge rather than the kind of consensus, collective, pluralistic majority that the Constitution is meant to produce. You're right. That's a very subtle argument compared to freedom of speech, right to keep and bear arms, you know, but, but it, it, the rights are not, and the framers understood this, the rights are not secure if the structure of the government is, is, is uh, not correct. So, um, you know, this is a harder thing for us to understand. It's less directly related to our rights, but it is still deeply and closely related to those things. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you wind up just with parchment barriers if you don't have the structures, right? I, I think, that, I mean, this isn't a question. You can respond to this if you, if you want to. But I, when, when I used to teach programs for citizens on the Constitution, I would raise the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists about whether having a Bill of Rights was actually dangerous. <laughs> right. And, you know, because I, I think that's, I think it's important for people to confront that. I'm curious if you're in your classes, if you ever kind of encounter that issue where students start to wonder, you know, is, is, is it the best way to protect rights by just sort of spelling them all out versus focusing on the structures? I, I don't know. Is that, is that a tension that, that you, uh, that you ever get, get mileage out of with your students? My classes are so deeply focused on the structures and the institutions that I'm constantly making the case to them that, you know, so I teach Congress, I teach the presidency, I teach political parties, I teach bureaucracy. And so my argument is always, if you want to, if you care about policy, you really can't understand how policy is made by just looking at the Bill of Rights. That plays a very small role in the overall picture. How Congress is structured is really important to figuring out if you have a, an accountable legislative branch or not. So, um, you know, I think the students figure it out. I mean, I certainly do my best to, to help them see it. That's great. Well, and, and uh, switching gears now for question four on our Six Questions podcast, talking here with uh, Dr. Joseph Postel of Hillsdale College, questions about Hillsdale College, uh, which has a very unique pedigree in terms of being a college that uh, was the first, I think, to prohibit discrimination based on race, based on sex, based on religion. It's its uh, origins and early years are connected with the history of the Republican Party and the abolition movement. I, I, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about Hillsdale and its legacy and how that can inform some of the debates that we see playing out uh, in, in higher education and just in our culture more broadly today. Yeah, so I just got here to Hillsdale less than two years ago, I taught at a public university in Colorado before that for 10 years. And obviously moving from one environment to the other was kind of like, uh, you know, moving to different worlds, different planets almost. Um, and it's just been very refreshing to be in a place where you can engage in open inquiry. Uh, there's a freedom here to 
in, engage in ideas, to confront ideas, uh, to, to disagree with each other and do so in a civil way. And so I think um, my hope is that Hillsdale College is presenting a sort of model and an example that other places, other especially smaller liberal arts colleges can follow because many of these colleges are confronting difficult times ahead. Um, that's pretty well understood by a lot of the presidents and leadership of these small liberal arts colleges. And, and there's a way that they can sort of preserve uh, what is so unique about the liberal arts college by preserving freedom of thought, preserving the freedom to engage in uh, disagreement, to do so in a civil way. Um, that sort of thing happens here. And it's, it's uh, really what education is supposed to be about. Uh, it's also challenging. And I think that's the other way forward, you know, for higher education. We've, especially over the last couple of years, there's been a strong tendency to sort of weaken standards and to reduce accountability. And I think students start to figure out that they're not really getting much for their money. The more that the college experience becomes more catering to them rather than challenging them, forcing them to grow and to, and to you know, to, to challenge themselves. And so um, this is a great place to be, especially at the present moment. And I'm hopeful that uh, other places might see Hillsdale as an example and, and maybe uh, do some positive reforms to, uh, to put them in a better position to thrive over the next, you know, decades and centuries. Yeah, I know. I, I saw just the other day a new college that was clearly modeled on, on you know, <laughs> some of the ideas behind Hillsdale that's trying to get itself started in, in another part of the country. I thought that's, you know, as, I mean, the wonderful thing about Hillsdale is uh, it can be repeated. It can be a model. And I think that's, uh, that's what needs to happen just all across the, the country uh, in order for, you know, and, and, and hopefully some existing institutions will also turn back, but uh, uh, you know, we, we just, we need to show how that, how that works. That's it's uh I could go on and on it as, as a, as someone with, with, uh, with the uh, kids who are uh, one formally in college and two uh, sort of with, with one foot in college through concurrent classes. Yeah. You see this, it's like a conspiracy where the professors and some of the students conspire to make the classes as easy as possible. And then you have this, you know, oftentimes minority of students who say, wait a second, we're, we're paying for this or somebody's <laughs> paying for this. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, question number uh, five, we now have within the federal bureaucracy a disinformation czar. What, what do you, I mean, this has attracted a lot of attention. I think it probably should get even more attention, which is why I'm asking you about it, Dr. Pastel. What do you, what do you think of that? I mean, is, is that a, a brave new world in uh, bureaucracy in America? Uh, right. You know, here's the great thing. Uh, I think, and I've only been just watching this over the last few hours or few, you know, the last day, I think actually just today, there's been a reversal in the policy and this person, this, this office might actually be now yeah. uh, not happening. So um, that would actually be, I think, probably good news because uh, I think most people understand that there's a problem with the federal government basically sort of policing uh speech about facts. And I think we all understand in this country, there is a problem with uh, sort of false narratives, false facts, people who believe, um, you know, and it happens, I would say, probably on both sides, uh, that, 
you know, there's a problem with confirmation bias, with people who only listen to their own side of an argument and so forth, and that the country might be better off if we all listened to each other a little bit more and sort of shouted at each other a lot less. Um, but that said, I don't think that's the role of the federal government or any of the sort of shadow agencies inside the federal government to be engaged in that. I think probably if any part of the you know, federal government is supposed to be helping us to engage in civil discourse, it's the United States Congress, which is obviously supposed to be an exemplar of that kind of open debate and honest debate and following rules you know, uh, to provide each side a voice. Uh, I don't think I would trust an administrative agency, uh, you know, you know, sort of staffed by people that we don't really know uh, to engage in that sort of behavior. So I think most people understand there was something problematic about that, even if they understand that there's a problem. This is not the solution to that problem. Yeah, I suppose if you're with within the administrative state, you know, sort of like the if you're a, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh-huh, right, uh, right. Which is the which is the challenge. Uh, so the last question on our six questions podcast is always the same. Uh, Dr. Postel, who is your favorite founding father and why? So the answer to that question is easy for me, and that's James Madison. Uh, and that's James Madison has been my favorite founder since I was a freshman in college, maybe a sophomore in college. Um, and I was really fortunate to go to a great undergraduate uh, university, Ashland University, right? A great professor who taught me uh, by reading the primary documents, the early Republic. Uh, so, you know, the debates between Hamilton, eventually the debates between Hamilton and Madison, of course, they were on the same side for a while, and then they, they became leaders of opposing parties. And um, Madison's uh, understanding of the Constitution and his understanding how, of how, in my view, Hamilton was really pushing the Constitution to its very outer edges in terms of a loose construction of the Constitution, you know, finding things like a national bank where it seemed like the Constitutional Convention had, had rejected such a thing that Madison was really trying to protect the Constitution that he is by many deemed to be the father of. Uh, his presence at the Constitutional Convention is invaluable. Uh, his, his essays in the Federalist papers are, in my view, the best essays, Federalist 10 and 51 and 49 and so many others, yeah. um, the essays on the Senate in 62 and 63. So all of his contributions, I mean, he's also the father, considered to be the father of the Bill of Rights, uh, and obviously one of the chief authors of the Bill of Rights. So here's a person who, throughout the whole of his political career, as an intellect, really was a great contributor to this constitutional system that's been handed down to us. You know, there were necessary people like George Washington, the indispensable man who, by his example, his prudence, his leadership, he contributed to, to, to this experiment. But Madison's intellect really was, I think, unmatched um, among the framers. And so for that reason, he's, he's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, James Madison. I mean, someone who his, his intellect and his force of character I, I think we're so intertwined uh you know and, and he you know by by multiple accounts really sacrificed his health yeah to study that hard because he believed that by accumulating knowledge and figuring out how to educate the people around him or persuade the people around him he could change the direction of the country and he was right. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> I think for those of us who live, you know, parts of our lives in, in, in books and in research, uh, it's hard not to be really inspired by that. 
Dr. Joseph Pastel of Hillsdale College, author of Bureaucracy in America, The Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government. Is there a way that we can follow you online? I don't know if you're on social media. Uh, tell, us, tell us how to stay in touch with your work. Sure. Yeah. Sadly, uh, I am on Twitter uh, and that's <laughs> at, at Joe Postel. Um, I don't tweet. I don't tweet a lot, but some of my work, uh, when I write some things, I, I try to spread the word there. Okay. At Joe Postel and people can find your book, Bureaucracy in America on Amazon or at their uh, local bookstore. I'm, I'm sure. Thank you so much for joining us on our six questions podcast. Thank you, Trent. And thanks to all of our listeners, viewers out there. Thanks for being a part of uh, what Save Our States does to educate the country about our constitutional structures, particularly the Electoral College. We'll be back again next week with another six questions.